Amen. Well, we're in Romans 8.28 this morning. Romans 8.28 is a fortress kind of verse. Probably many of you know it by heart or at least can paraphrase the passage. It's often quoted, especially in times of difficulty, and sometimes people will dismiss it and say, you actually ought not to quote this verse when people are struggling. And I suppose there probably could be a way that's unhelpful to quote this passage to others. But let me just tell you, for me, when the hard day comes, oh man, please remind me of this verse. Remind me of the glorious truth that we're going to see. It is always precious to me. These verses are a blanket for cold souls, a pillow for weary heads. So this morning, we're going to look at 8, 28, and 29. And even in these verses, there are a few controversial words theological terms that we're actually not going to spend a whole lot of time on this morning. That's going to be next week. Cody Bingham's going to cover that. I'm going to leave town. <clears throat> not really, but we'll, we'll hint at that. But next week, we'll cover some of the theology. It will be fun. Bring a friend. But today, Romans 8, 28, and 29. If you're using our Pew Bibles, it's page 888. Book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Main point of these passages and therefore, the sermon is that God's plan for all eternity is to make us like his son. God's plan from all eternity is to make us like his son. Let's unpack it phrase by phrase. First, he starts there in verse 28. He says, and we know. And this word and in other places is translated but. can go either way depending on the context. I lean towards but because of the, the preceding verses there. Look at 826. He says the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for. In fact, there's all kinds of things we don't know this side of glory. We don't know what God is up to in various situations. We don't know what we should do sometimes. But verse 28, we do know this. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, for are called according to his purpose. And it's really important to get this right. It's not the case that all things work together for good in and of themselves. No, that's not the case. No, in all things, God works for good. I think the NIV and the new, uh, the NASB are actually better here where God is the implied subject of the verb works here. It is God who works all things. God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. We speak of the meticulous sovereignty of God. He's sovereign over everything. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite Baptist preachers. I like how he puts it. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. 
He who believes in God must believe this truth. There's no standing point between this and atheism. There's no halfway between an almighty God who works all things according to the good pleasure of his will and no God at all. The God of the Bible is on the throne. The God of the Bible is sovereign. One of my favorite passages is Proverbs 16.33. shows this meticulous sovereignty. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Basically for us, that'd be like rolling a dice, casting lots. We roll the dice, but it's every decision is from the Lord. He's even sovereign over the rolling of the dice. Proverbs 21.1, the king's hearts is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's really encouraging in our current moment, right? We have no need to panic in 2020. The king's heart's a stream, stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it. God works all things. He's actively at work on our behalf. Here's how Isaiah puts it in chapter 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn... As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God is sovereign. It's a missing attribute in many pulpits today. That's why I want to pound it home. It's all over. Isaiah 46, verse 9. I am God. There's none like me declaring the end from the beginning. From the ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Sovereign. He works all things. He's already declared the end from the beginning. And he did that from ancient times. He, he planned it all. His counsel will stand. It cannot be thwarted. Reminds you of King Nebuchadnezzar when he comes to his senses in Daniel 4. And he speaks this about God. He said, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing as he does according to his will. Among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or here's how Ephesians chapter 1 puts it. It says, we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Just notice, it's like word after word after word so that we see that it's his plan. Predestined according to his purpose, the purpose of him who works, the one who works not some things but all things, and he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He will accomplish his purpose, and his purpose is to work all things for good, but he doesn't work all things for the good of everyone. He, he works all for good, but not for all. This is not a universal promise here in Romans 8.28. It's a promise for the people of God. Notice what he says there. Look at verse 28 again. Who's it for? He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God works all things for good for those who love him. So the question then becomes, do you love him? Do you love him? Not do you know about him? Not did you at one point in your life make a decision? Not even do you come to church. Do you love him? How would you know if you loved him? Well, King Jesus helps us really clearly to answer that question. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we know if we love the Lord? We obey him. 
John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. First John tells us that those who love God love his people. So in the Bible, love is not some merely sentimental or emotion. It is a, it's a verb. It's an action. Love shows itself in obedience to God. And all true believers love the Lord. And so loving the Lord is the prerequisite for this promise to be claimed. But it's a qualification that's met by every, every genuine believer. Which is why it's not the only qualification he says. Notice he adds to it. Look again at 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This promise is only for believers. It's for those who love God. It's for those who are called according to his purpose. We've already talked a little bit about what Paul means by calling, and we'll do that again next week. But in Paul, it's more than just an invitation. It's a sovereign summons. We're dead in our sin. If you remember Romans chapter 3, verse 10, and Romans 8, 7, we're unable on our own to respond to him. But as the gospel is preached, it is is the power of God, Romans 1, 16 and 17. As that general call goes out and the gospel is preached, the Spirit effectively calls those whom he wills, called according to his purpose. It's an effective call, a sovereign summons. It comes through the Spirit as the gospel is free. So the human side is to love God. That's our part. This promise is for those who love God, but the divine side is it's for those who are called. And the Holy Spirit puts both here wisely. If he had just said love, we might worry, well, do I love him enough? And if he had only put called, we may wonder, well, am I called? And so he says this promise is for those who love God, for those who are called. And the called are those who love God. But that's not all. This promise is also only for those whom God has foreknown. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. And again, we'll get into the weeds on these terms next week, but for now, I'll just define it. Next week, I'll demonstrate it. But for now, just know that to foreknow really means to forelove. It means to love beforehand, to know in an intimate way beforehand, before time. It's really just a synonym of choose. So we'll see next week. So to be foreknown is to be chosen before the foundation of the world. So this promise is for those who love God. This promise is for those who are called. This promise is for those who are foreknown by God. But that's not all. There's more. Look again at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, if that word doesn't rile people up, I don't know what does. In my ministry in the past, I've heard people say about me, well, you know, Pastor Blake believes in predestination. And I often respond, every Christian believes in predestination because it happens multiple times in the Bible. Now, people define it differently, but every Christian believes in predestination because, well, here it is. It occurs frequently. John Calvin didn't make it up. He just spoke into the mic clearly about it. Well, what does it mean? Well, the word's right there. It's defined in the word. It means to destine beforehand. It's to determine the destination beforehand. It's to predestine. So again, we'll dive into that a little more next week. But here I want to focus on the goal. What is the goal? Let's read both verses again. Verse 28. We know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here's the goal, in order to be conformed to the image of his son. Then he mentions another purpose, in order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is the goal here? To be conformed to Jesus, to be made like Jesus. That's the goal and that's the good. God works all things together for the good of his people. And the good is not health. The good is not wealth. The good is not material prosperity. The good is not comfortable circumstances. The good is conformity to Christ. The good is our sanctification. The good is our transformation, our conformity to the image of the Son, our growing in Christ's likeness to be conformed to him, to be shaped by him, to be remade from the inside out. That's what the good is. So that we might be conformed to the image of his son. Where does this language of image come from? Hopefully your mind goes straight to Genesis chapter 1. Where mankind is made in the image of God. We were to represent God. We were to reflect God. We were to rule the world on behalf of God. Well, that didn't go very well, right? We see that in Genesis chapter 3 and the rest of the Bible. We, we're all made in the image of God, but that image is marred because of sin. We'll enter Jesus. Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's why we saw in Romans chapter 5. He's the last Adam. He's the truly human one. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Christ is the image of God. So Jesus is the true image, and now we're being conformed to him. At the fall, the image of God is in us, marred, but not lost completely. And now in Christ, the image of God in us is being restored. In that sense, really what we're trying to do as Christians is to become who we were made to be, to become truly human people. And Jesus is our example. Our older brother, Colossians 3.10 says, we have, if we're believers, we've put on the new self and are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator in order that we might be conformed to the image of son. And then he says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn just means preeminence. See that in the Psalms, it speaks of his supremacy in the New Testament. Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent among his family, that Jesus would be exalted as we're conformed to him. God gets glory when we look more like Jesus because he wants Jesus to be preeminent in the world. This is God's grand goal. God's eternal purpose is to make us more like Jesus, that we might reflect the Son. Do you know that's really the fundamental purpose of your existence, if you're a Christian, to become like Jesus? When you, when you become a Christian, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that's just the beginning. That's not the end. That's just the beginning. And the rest of our life, our fundamental goal, we're all called to various things in this room, Fundamentally, our call is to glorify God by becoming more like Jesus. That is God's grand goal because he wants the son to be preeminent. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. One of my favorite passages to see what is God's grand goal in history. Why are we here? What is he up to? Ephesians chapter 1, I actually think there's a... A verse misplacement, that's just a human, human convention. 
There at the end of verse 8, I think it begins the sentence. In all wisdom and insight, verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. What's God's will? He's made it known to us. According to his purpose. What's his purpose? He's made it known to us. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan. What's God's plan? He's made it known to us. For the fullness of time, here it is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is God's will? What is God's purpose? What is God's plan? Why did he create? Because he wants Jesus to be preeminent. He wants to sum up all things in Jesus Christ, to unite all things in Jesus Christ. And how does he start? He starts with us. Saw a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter 8, one day he will do that to the whole created order. But how does he begin? With us. He created the world by starting with creation and then creating humanity. What does he do with redemption? He's recreating us. And then he will recreate the whole cosmos. This is his purpose. So God is sovereign. He's working all things for the good of those who love him, for the good of those who are called, those foreknown, those predestined, in order that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus so that he might be preeminent. This is God's plan. He works all things. And remember the context, if you've been here with us. The context is that of suffering. He works all things. He does work the good in order to conform us to the image of Jesus. He works the good for our transformation. And so maybe it's job promotions or strong relationships or healthy babies or a new house or a stable job or a health and well-being. But do those things tend to draw you closer to the Lord? Those things sometimes actually draw us away from the Lord. Thomas Watson said, Jonah was asleep in the ship, but at prayer in the well's belly. C.S. Lewis, God whispers in our joy, but he shouts in our pain. Because when things are going great, we tend to get independent or think we're independent, right? We tend to focus on the good rather than the giver of the good. God works all things. He does work through the good things, but the context here is actually the hard things. It's the suffering. Remember, look at verse 17, Romans 8, 17. He says, if we're children... Then we're heirs, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified with him. Context here in Romans 8 is that of suffering. Look over at verse 23. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies life is hard context of suffering context is that of needing to suffer before glory glory is coming but it's not yet and so this age is an age of suffering this age is an age of groaning and eagerly waiting for this the lord to come back and to make all things right so god works all things he works the good but he also works through suffering and groanings for our good, to make us like Jesus, to conform us to his son. God is sovereign over all things, including suffering. Lamentations 3, verse 38. 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? He's sovereign. Like when we say that, a lot of Christians say God is sovereign here at Southside. We really mean it. Job. Remember Job loses everything. What does he say at the end of the chapter? Job chapter 1 verse 21. The Lord gives. He lost everything. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the author puts in this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Because if that wasn't there, we might think, no, no, Job didn't. God didn't do that. God didn't take away. So the author says, in all this, Job didn't sin or charge God with wrong. Then in chapter 2, verse 10, Job says, shall we not receive good from the Lord and not also evil? And then it says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Because the author wants us to know God is ultimately sovereign over all things. Isaiah 45, 17, Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Amos chapter 3, verse 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The, the most evil thing of all history is what? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So as the church is being launched in Acts 22 and 23, it says that the crucifixion was God's foreordained plan. In case we missed it, he repeats himself in Acts 4, 27 and 28 and says the same thing. The cross, the most heinous act in history, was predestined to take place. God is sovereign. He works all things. He doesn't work only the good things. He works all things. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 is really the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament. Maybe you remember the story of, Jesus, of Joseph, abandoned by his brothers, separated from his family, but God shows him favor in Egypt and he ends up saving the lives of his brothers and his people and they reunite and his brothers are nervous. Is he going to take revenge on us now that we abandoned him all those years ago and he's now in authority over us? And what does Joseph say in Genesis 50, 20? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What you did was evil. In your doing, God was doing. And it was for good that many people should be kept alive as, alive as they are today. And so, friends, you know we're going to suffer, and we know God is sovereign over all things, but here's what's really important to remember and remind ourselves. God is not against us. This is not punishment. He's for us, and he's for our good. He disciplines us, Hebrews 12, because he loves us for our good. It's not punishment. It is not wrath. There is no wrath left for Christians, right? You were here, Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 8. As John Newton said, there's no sting in your rod nor wrath in your cup. So this is his love to ordain hard days for us. He uses suffering to conform us to Jesus. The special sauce of sanctification is struggle. And those of you who've suffered, you know this well. This truth is so helpful in handling the hard stuff. God's working all things for our good, even suffering. Makes us realize there's no meaningless suffering. There's no wasted pain. God has purpose in your pain. From the persecution or the criticism or the slander or the loss 
or the cancer or the sickness or the disappointments, the hurts, the rebellious children, the sick parents, the back pain, the difficult coworker, the struggling marriage, and all of them, God is working through them for your good, which is your conformity to Jesus. He's at work. He has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten. At this very moment, he may be up to a thousand things in your life. You're probably oblivious to 95% of them. But if you believe this verse, you know he's in control, you know there's no accidents, and you know he's for you. It's not that suffering is good. I'm masochist here. It's not that suffering is a good thing. Suffering is terrible. I mentioned Joni Erickson Tata here recently uh, and just love that woman to death. She was paralyzed at 18 years old and has been in a wheelchair as a paraplegic for about 50 years now. Uh, battling cancer now. She's written a lot of suffering and people who've suffered like she has, I want to hear from because she's got a smile on her face and a song in her heart. And she often talks about meeting the Lord. And she's going to meet him. And she said, what am I going to do? She's been in a wheelchair for 50 years. She said, I'm going to praise the Lord. This is where the gospel gets real. It's where the rubber meets the road. She's going to praise the Lord for the thousand untold ways that that wheelchair has shaped her and made her like Jesus. She's going to thank him for that wheelchair in the fact that she is conformed to Jesus in a way that she wouldn't have been without it. And then she's going to humbly ask him to send the thing to hell. <laughs> it's not that suffering's good. We're not elevating suffering. It's just that God promises to work through it and work through it in a special way. To bring us near to him in a way that we won't be brought near Without it, suffering brings us to a place of humble, humble dependence that we ought to be all the time. Charles Spurgeon again, he says, I've learned to kiss the wave which crashes me into the rock of ages. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes, he says, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health with the exception of sickness. And when it comes, see, how we handle the adversity will show who we are. It will show if we love God. It will show if we're called. You've all experienced this. You've all had friends where something hard comes into the life. There's one, it's a fork in the road. Will you turn to him or will you turn away from him? Turn the temperature up and the true flavor of the tea comes out. It's the same sun that melts the wax that will harden the clay. The key is not our circumstances and changing our circumstances. The key is our heart for the Lord. Are we for him? Do we trust him? Do we love him? The key is our posture towards God. We may not be able to understand what he's doing. We, not, we certainly won't like it, but we can trust his heart. We may not discern what his hand is up to, but know that his heart is for us. And so we remind ourselves of that. I don't want to be here. This is painful. I'd rather be anywhere, but I know that God is for me. I know that he is my father. And I know this isn't an accident. This isn't from the evil one. This is from a loving father who sees areas of my heart and my life that need to be chipped away at. And so how will I respond to it? 
We remind ourselves that the present sufferings, Romans 8, 18, are only lights in comparison to the future glory. They're only momentary. They're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. We remind ourselves God has a purpose in it. And so even on our hardest day, we can even praise him. What a witness, just like Job, you give, you take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the God. He is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk 3. Can you say that, church? If you believe Romans 8, you can. Romans 8 fortifies us. This promise transforms the way we view life, the way we face life, the good and the bad, even our failings. Isn't it encouraging to know we cannot screw up God's purpose for our good? This past year, it may have been one of your most difficult years of your life. This past year, God could not have been more good to you. Do you believe that? If good means being conformed to Jesus Christ. This passage fortifies us so that we view the problems of life through God's loving purpose. And so we pray, Lord, get me out of this. But we don't just pray, Lord, get me out of this. We pray, Lord, what can I get out of this? God's at work. God's at work. I love the way Randy Alcorn puts it. He says, everything that comes into the life of a believer has been father-filtered. You are at every moment enveloped in his fatherly care. In an environment where absolutely nothing can touch you without his gracious and wise permission. He is our father and he loves us. That's where we're going to continue going in Romans 8. He wipes our eyes with tears that we may see him more clearly. Scotty Smith says he'll bring pain into our lives to make us cry uncle in order that we might cry Abba. It's like the infant, the infant born who requires surgery. Some of you experienced that. Got some folks that come that have experienced that. And oftentimes you can't eat. So uh, an infant can't be told that, right? So you have an infant can't eat for 24 hours because they need to go into surgery right away. And so the infant is just screaming starving, hungry, and the parents just holding that baby. Can't do anything, just trying to calm the baby, knowing what they need, but also knowing that it won't be good for them, and so just making promises. This is not meaningless. This is not purposeless. Trust me, you're gonna be better on the other side. Just endure, I waste no pain. My eternal purpose is to conform you to Jesus Christ, and I work all things, even the hard things, for your good, to make you more like him. Maybe you've heard of this Japanese art called kintsugi. Literally means to repair with gold. And so when, when bowls or cups are broken, you put it back together. And with the solvent, you use real gold to put it back together. I think we've got a picture of one such bowl. A bowl had shattered and it's put together 
with gold. The new piece is more beautiful than the original because of the gold shining through the cracks. More valuable and more precious for having been broken. That's the business that God is in. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 18, preached a sermon based upon this text, Romans 8, 28. And he said, we ought to be the most rock-ribbed people and even most happy people on planet Earth for three reasons. Number one, even our bad things will work together for good. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that liberating? It changes everything. Come what may I have a loving God who is for me, who is working for my good, which is my conformity to Jesus, which is where true life is to be found. Our bad things even work for good. Number two, our good things. What are our good things? Well, it's all the gospel glories we have. It's what we've seen in Romans. It's the fact that we've been justified, forgiven, declared in the right. We've been adopted as sons of God. We've been united with Jesus Christ. Our good things cannot be taken away. Bad things work for our good. Good things cannot be taken away. Our best things, which is eternal life with God, is yet to come. Our best is yet to come. And so he closes that sermon saying, the godly person is happy in whatsoever world circumstances they are placed. Why? Because our hope, our joy, our life is not built on the sinking sand of changing circumstances. It's built on a God who's for us, working all things for our good. Listen to John Newton. John Newton basically paraphrases these verses this way. Everything is needful that he sins. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. That's a paradigm-shifting sentence. Just think if you believe this in all of life. Everything is needful that he sins. Nothing can be needful that he withholds because he works all things for the good of those who love him that we might be more like Jesus. Friends, if Romans 8.28 is true, everything we receive, we need And if we don't receive it, we don't need it. All these verses are so liberating, so freeing. We don't live in a chance random world. The enemy cannot overpower our father. Luther said the devil is God's devil. That's what we see in the book of Job. Can I do this? Well, you can go that far no more. This truth frees us. It frees us from being angry people. No reason to be angry at God, no reason to be angry at others. Frees us from bitterness if we believe these verses. Frees us from anxiety. Anxiety is saying Romans 8, 28 and 29 is not true. It gives us joy, as Edwards points out. It helps us endure the hard days. And it gives us gratitude for all things. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers.